Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we also think that something inhuman took over our high school. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're in the middle of our teen horror-focused season, currently living through some peak 90s teen horror, and are diving into how this subgenre has evolved, why teenagers make for such fascinating protagonists, and why we keep going back to high school in horror. Before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Ghost UK. We also have a Patreon where you can support us should you choose to do so at patreon.com forward slash The Final Girls. And if you enjoy this podcast and are unwilling to throw a couple of quid our way, that's absolutely fine. But they would really appreciate it if you could leave a little review over on Apple Podcasts. And if you are interested in more 90s teen horror goodness, I've also launched a new podcast all about the Scream franchise called Hello Sydney, which is co-hosted by friends of the pod, Mike Munzer and Louise Blaine. And you can find the first episode of that on this very feed and you can find it wherever you get your podcast as well. We are covering each Scream film in depth in advance of the new one being released in January 2022. But back to school business though, joining me on this episode is the truly brilliant writer, film analyst, and co-host of the teen-centric podcast This Ends at Prom, BJ Colangelo, who chatted with me about the unfairly maligned sci-fi horror disturbing behavior. Consider this episode the start of the Release the Nuttercut campaign. It might just be me, but you know what? A, a campaign is a campaign. Following my conversation with BJ, you'll hear a reprise of the chat that I had with film critic Leila Latif about another sci-fi teen horror, the Kevin Williamson penned The Faculty, two 1998 bangers featuring absolutely peak 90s casts and hairdos. This discussion originally aired as part of our Female Monster series, which if you enjoy it, I definitely recommend you go back into our feed and rediscover. And both these films make for an excellent late 90s sci-fi horror double bill, if you ask me. Please note, as usual, as all of our discussions, this conversation is spoiler heavy pretty much from the very beginning. And with all of that said, please enjoy our takes on disturbing behavior and the faculty. Blue ribbons. What's that? It's a community group, good kids, bake sales, car washes, kiss a lot of adults, speak to blue robots. Here, here. This group's music of choice, the hum of perfection, the buzz of ambition, drug of choice, life, pursuit of clean living, the expense of all who sniffle at the hem of their gowns. Freaks so chic. Then you got kids like me and UV here, names who like our metal heavy. Marlboro Slight, Music of Choice, Harvester of Sorrow, Language of the Mad. Drug of Choice, what do you got? Freaks all week. That's it. Lesson over. Class dismembered. Welcome to Cradle Bay High, Stevie boy. Welcome to my nightmare. 
BJ, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful and so excited to talk about this movie. I'm really pumped. I'm so excited that you picked it. And since it's your since it's your first time on the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your relationship with horror is? Sure. So, hi everyone. My name is BJ Colangelo and I've been writing in the horror sphere for a about 12, 13 years now. Time is meaningless after the last two years. So <laughs> I really don't know at this point. Um, but uh, the way that I always pitch myself is think of your favorite horror publication, Fangoria, Horror Hound, what have you. I've probably written for them at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I write a lot about horror. Uh, I tend to be more of an analyst and a theorist rather than a critic, because I find it much more interesting to really get into the nitty gritty of why a movie impacts us the way that it does rather than whether or not it's any good. Um, so that's my relationship with horror. It is my my bread and butter. It is my baby. I love it very much. Um, but I also am a podcaster focusing specifically on teen movies and teen movies that are marketed towards girls and young women. Um, or, you know, as we always say on our show, the girls gaze and nays, because that tends to be who <laughs> listens to us the most. Um, but it's called The Sunset Prom. And I co host it with my wife, Harmony, who is a transgender woman. So she completely missed all of these movies because she was socialized as a teenage boy. And we kind of dissect them, look at the cultural relevancy, the impact that they had on teen girls and pop culture influence, their staying power, what it has to say about about womanhood. So getting to come and talk to you feels just like a marriage of my two greatest loves. I mean, truly, I was about to say, I think I I would have completely respected you if you hunted me down if I had not invited you to come on this season, because I think your name was one of the top ones on my list of people that I wanted to talk to about teen horror when I started putting this together. <laughs> I mean, I may have been plotting once I saw your announcement, <laughs> but luckily you did email me, so crisis averted. <laughs> I absolutely love this Sunset Prom. Um, it's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to when I'm walking around, and very often just get, I think I've told you this before, just get looked at uh, weirdly by strangers because I just start laughing out loud. <laughs> and, and funnily enough, I was talking with a, with a friend, another kind of horror podcaster here in London, about how much we love the podcast and how weird it is always to talk to people who you feel like you get to know uh, through their work and through the po the intimate medium of podcasting mm -hmm. and then talking to them even through a microphone and through a distance it still feels like oh i'm actually talking to one of the co-hosts of the sense of prom how weird and strange <laughs> and wonderful <laughs> I was talking to a friend about something similar where I feel like some of the most intimate friendships I've made through the the course of the pandemic so far have been people that I've gotten very in touch with through their podcasts mm. because there is that intimacy because unless you're hosting a podcast that is very like news based there's so much of yourself that's poured into the the conversations that it feels like you're talking with friends completely agree and i've made some very very good friends through through making podcasts some of some people that i haven't even you know met in real life or had not met in real life until very very recently um, mm -hmm. so we, we i know your love uh, for teen movies but can you talk a little bit specifically about your your thoughts or your approach to teen horror specifically as a subgenre 
Absolutely. So teen horror movies have always really resonated with me deeply because your teenage years in general are when you feel the most othered by the world around you. Your hormones are going crazy. You have everybody telling you that you need to be doing certain things or being a a certain way in order to be successful adults. And we're still trying to figure ourselves out. So it's like a giant flurry of conflict Mm -hmm. that you're that you're going through and horror movies are one of the only outlets that have ever allowed teenagers to stop and say hey this is really hard and this is really scary and in a lot of cases this is really fucked up Mm -hmm. and we tend to not allow teenagers to have those experiences in cinema because those are the movies that you see that end up being like Oscar bait of somebody in their late 20s into their 30s, which, you know, also a very pivotal time. But we don't ever allow that autonomy to teenagers because we tend to view them as, oh, well, they're just kids Mm -hmm. or they're too stupid to know what's going on or your high school years don't matter. And all of that's incorrect. These years do matter. They just may not matter the way that we have socialized teenagers to believe that they do. Like, yes, going to prom is not the end all be all of your world. But that feeling of rejection if you don't get anyone to ask you or the feeling of self-doubt you had when you're looking for a prom dress. Those are all very serious things that can impact you for the rest of your life. And I love horror movies because they allow people to address those fears in a very stylized way so that you're, you're dealing with it from a safe distance. It's not just trauma dumping. Um, but it, it allows it to be fun. It's a fun way to dive in and go, hey, it's really tough being a teen. And sometimes it's a nightmare, isn't it? Huh? Mm-hmm. And also it's a way of kind of making literal the threat of these decisions that are constantly told to you that are very really small and meaningless. Like, you know, whether you get asked out for a prom or, you know, or whatever the equivalent is. I didn't grow up in the States. So like whatever the dancey equivalent of prom is, wherever you're based mm-hmm. or, or grew up in, or, you know, be, you know, being bullied or uh, someone not asking you out who you want to be asked out by or whatever form of kind of feelings or things that you're going through they're always minimized like you say and i feel like horror is one of those where all of those things are made extreme through the threat of zombies or aliens or mad scientists or mm-hmm. some like telekinetic powers or what or what have you right and i think that that makes teenagers feel very, very seen as well. I mean, there are so many people that talk about their favorite characters are people like Carrie White, are people like Sidney Prescott, because it's like, that's that's how I felt when I was in high school is that I was just trying to survive, Mm. or I felt like I needed to burn it all down. And yeah, not all of us are going to have to face hopefully a masked villain coming after us and trying to kill all of our family and friends. I hope no one has to go through that. But when you're a teenager, especially if you're a teenage girl, sometimes it does feel like everyone in the world is out to get you Mm -hmm. and you scream at the top of your lungs that this isn't fair or that this is scary. And people just say, oh, you, and they just push it aside because again, you're a teenager and you're not offered that autonomy yet. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's get into our conversation about disturbing behavior. And for anyone who might have not revisited this film in a little while, can you try and summarize the plot of the film really briefly for me? 
Sure. So Disturbing Behavior is about a kid named Steve, played by James Marsden, playing against type, which is also exciting, Mm -hmm. because he's an everyman and not a popular jock in this one. Uh, But him and his little sister, Lindsay, played by teen horror icon Catherine Isabel, uh, and their family move to a small town called Cradle Bay. And it's a bit of an isolated town. It's on like a little island. You have to get to it by ferry. And they move there and find that the cliques of this high school are very deeply ingrained in the fabric of the community. And there's a group called the Blue Ribbons, and they're kind of your typical proto-jocks, you know, very much do-gooders, full of school spirit. Uh, But the teenagers start to realize that the Blue Ribbons may not be uh, what they appear to be. And as it turns out, there is an entire conspiracy happening uh, where parents are willingly offering their children up to be brainwashed a la like Stepford Wives to turn them into the quote-unquote ideal teens. Um, and the problem is that the, the the transition for these kids is also imperfect because they can't fully brainwash these teens. They still have a little bit of their own urges. And when those urges come into direct conflict with their blue ribbon style of behavior, they act out in very disturbing ways and very violent ways. And it's up to Steve and, and some of his friends, the, the other losers of the community, so to speak, to try to put a stop to it. Beautiful. So let's start with what you that your summary has already kind of laid out. And it's the the cast system of the high school, which I think is a very teen movie trope. Every film high school, I think every high school that ever existed and will exist will have its own kind of social strata system. Mm -hmm. And when Steve arrives, he is he is a he's a, you know, kind of an everyman, like you say, but also kind of middle of the road. So he's perfect for us to be introduced as to how Cradle Bay and the teens there work. And he kind of gravitates where he's pulled into the weird bunch with Gavin and UV. So mm-hmm. how how is this Cradle Bay High School divided and who's who? Who matters and how do they behave? <laughs> So what I find really interesting is I'm fascinated by especially the American click high school cast systems that exist mm-hmm. because they are not universal. Like I always crack up when I watch something like 10 Things I Hate About You mm-hmm. and there's the group of white Rastafarians. Um, it's like, that's a very interesting choice. Or the cowboys, like there's always like yeah. a cowboy group. <laughs> And so in Disturbing Behavior, one of the groups they have are like the gearheads, kids that work on cars and want to be mechanics. That's such an interesting click to me. (laughs) And I love that they're sort of written off as being like these nobodies. But I'm like, I don't know if you've checked the last time how how much money mechanics make. Like, that's a very profitable trade to have. Um, So we have like this, that sort of a, a... a click, you you know, we obviously have the blue ribbon. So the people that are considered to be the end all be all like they are the popular ones. But what's interesting is that they are popular and loved by the community. But everyone in the high school kind of hates them because mm-hmm. they're assholes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I find that to be one of the most fascinating analyses, because when you look at other teen movies, mm-hmm. uh, Mean Girls is probably the most obvious comparison, because you get the exact same scene in that movie where you have Janice introducing Katie to all of the different cliques. And that's the exact same thing that happens in this with Gavin to mm-hmm. Steve. And in both of those instances, you have like the weird gothy outsider kid that's looked down upon 
and then presenting all of these clicks. But the difference is in something like Mean Girls, even the plastics, while they are known to be like kind of mean and catty, people still really admire them. But at this school, that's not necessarily the case. People are afraid of them. And rightfully so, they are afraid of them. Um, I, I just find that very interesting. It's it's interesting you pointed out because the people who admire the blue ribbons in this high school and in the community, I think it's like it's a good moment to point out that Cradle Bay is like a very small community and quite isolated mm-hmm. as well, both geogra- geographically, um, which will come into play in the plot of the film. But it's the adults that admire them. So they're kind of yes. the, the little social group of the teens who are hated by the other teens, but really coddled by the adults. So they, they're kind of the, the example that everyone else is supposed to follow, but nobody really wants to follow them because they are assholes and they're weird in a kind of cr- instantly creepy way. Yeah, they very much reside in kind of like the uncanny valley yes. because they, they're not all there. And, you know, we find out later it's because they're literally brainwashed mm-hmm. um, or implanted with a chip, however you want to describe <laughs> it. Um, so that's why they're so off. But it's so telling because I think that that's how high schools genuinely do function. I'm I'm very fascinated about high schools because I find them to be time capsules of people's trauma. Like you go into a high school and you see images on the walls of like, the state basketball team from the 1970s mm-hmm. or a picture from the drama club putting on the first production in this new theater that we built in whatever year. But we don't actually know anything about these people. We don't know if they were good people. We don't know if they were good students. We don't know if they were kind. We don't know if half the people on that basketball team are a bunch of racists. Mm-hmm. We have no idea. All we know is what we've been provided. And it seems like that is what has always mattered to adults. Like, and I'll fully admit this as a high school student, I went through some severe trauma and I did have a bit of like a drug issue for a hot minute, but nobody said anything because I was an honor student. Mm-hmm. So because my my issues with addiction and my obvious cries for help were not impacting my grades, no one was like, oh, this is not serious enough to step in. She's fine. And that feels very much like disturbing behavior like yeah they're having these very violent outbreaks in Mm -hmm. the the middle of a supermarket but hey you know what they're they're still good kids and they they don't talk back to their parents so that's all that matters i hadn't thought about it until you brought it up bj but it's it's complete you're completely right i actually went through a similar thing in high school where i was a, a straight a student for my entire high school career but when in the later years was getting into a lot of trouble and nobody and was just not going through a very nice period at all and instead of anyone addressing anything it didn't really matter because i got good grades and kept the school average up a lot Mm -hmm. so it was very easily dismissed and i probably should have gotten into a lot more trouble for the shit that i got up to but it was very much waved away because i got the very good grades Mm -hmm. and i think that's that's what's happening here with the blue ribbons too. Mm. It is such an interesting reflection that's being shown about the priorities of a, a, it's such an American movie. This movie is so American. And what's really interesting to me is that the blue ribbons, because they are like brainwashed or, you know, transformed by this chip that they're implanted with, they're being essentially modeled into someone's idea of the perfect teenager. So mm-hmm. what is, you know, I mean, like this is all spoiler. So like, what is the, Dr. Caldicott, who we'll come to later, what is the adult's version 
of a perfect teenager in this film. It feels very much like an extension of the mental hygiene films that were presented in the 1950s um, when people Mm -hmm. were really worried about like teens driving and, and being rambunctious. And it is a very sanitized, very conservative, very Reagan era appearance, uh, also very white. Mm -hmm. And while there are blue ribbon members who are not white, they have been conformed to act like proper quote unquote white behavior. It is upholding all of these like terrible, you know, systemic structures that are already in place of white supremacy and the patriarchy. Like that is what they are feeding these kids into being. Mm -hmm. The blue ribbon kind of ideal is um, good grades on a track record to becoming uh, politicians or business people. It's like you say, Mm -hmm. it's all um like the the female characters are completely subservient to the male blue ribbons sex is completely eliminated which is the thing that Mm -hmm. also triggers their violent behavior is that the chip that they're implanted with cannot actually delete their sexual their sex drive and their their hormones and their impulses so that's the thing that causes them to kind of quote-unquote malfunction but why do you think this is this becomes the kind of the What's the word I'm looking for? The unstoppable kind of horniness of teenagers becomes the undoing <laughs> of the Stepford Wives plan to make them into these perfect teens. What do you think the movie's trying to to tell us about sex in this regard? I find this movie to be weirdly sex positive in that route because it is presenting it as a way of the the natural impulses of teenagers are in direct opposition of the socialization that we want teenagers to have. This is why and, and why I feel this movie to be so American is because we do not have a comprehensive universal sex education in this in this country. We just don't. There are some states that don't have sex education at all. They teach abstinence only. And those states tend to be the ones with the highest levels of teen pregnancy. They have, you know, a lot of issues because you can't stop the uh, the hormones and the urges and trying to push them down and pretend that they don't exist is going to make them self-combust because mm-hmm. they're, they're two unstoppable forces acting against one another. And I find that really interesting because it's this ideal that parents have of my kid is, is quote unquote clean. Mm-hmm. My kid is not pursuing this rambunctious, pr- you know, promiscuous behavior. That is the status of of what is a good child and this movie is like no you can't do that like when you try to determine somebody's goodness by whether or not you're having sex that that it doesn't process it doesn't work because that you can't control it like those those emotions and those feelings and those urges exist and there needs to be a safe outlet for them and when there is not a safe outlet for them that's when violence happens and that is something that is so very true that exists in the world. We look at like the, the incel culture mm-hmm. and how they have these urges and no one has ever taught them what it means, how to process them, what to do with them. And they act in unsafe ways. And that's what's happening with these blue ribbons. If you just t- say, Hey kids, it's okay to have sex. It's okay to feel this way, but you have to understand consent. You have to understand the, the, the risks that come along with it. Just be safe about it then the issues 
go away. And nobody wants to have that conversation because it's uncomfortable for parents to think about teenagers having sex. Mm. And it's very much in the text of the film from the very first scene, which really, you know, the, the, the very beginning of the film, it starts with two teenagers making out and, and engaging in, in oral sex in a car parked in the forest. Like this is, this is iconography that we've been fed through horror movies and teen movies alike. And, mm-hmm. and it ends with a really graphic, uh, with a really graphic murder. And it's really disturbing the way that it just gets literally swept away under the rug by both the teen boy who's murdered the girl, but also the police officer who finds them and just kind of lets them off the hook. So instantly, it's already put us in a place where sex is punished mm-hmm. and also violence is protected by the adults in Cradle Bay. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I find so fascinating with this movie is because you see that and you recognize immediately that the people who've been brainwashed and obviously the police, cause they're, they're working in tandem with the, the brainwashers. Um, they're the bad guys. Like, mm. so the people that are covering up for this violence are the bad guys. Had this student not been brainwashed more than likely they just would have had sex and gone home. And there wouldn't have been this problem, but he's got this microchip in his brain that's like, no, you acting on this desire is bad, and she's even worse for mm-hmm. wanting to do this with you, and therefore, she must be punished. So, you know, the the idea is not that sex is, you know, bad or punishable. It's the people who believe that sex is bad or punishable, like, worthy of punishment. Those mm-hmm. are the villains. That's who we need to fight against. And I think that's fascinating. And let's talk a little bit about our protagonists, essentially the weirdos of the film, who are mm-hmm. Steve, who gets adopted by the by the weird kids in the school, and obviously Gavin, played by Nick Stahl and UV, and later on, uh, Rachel as well, played by, well, up-and-coming star at that point, um, Katie Holmes. Mm-hmm. What do you think, I, I've always found it interesting how kind of quote-unquote weirdos are coded in, in pop culture or presented in, in movies and in, in TV in particular, because they always, always visually fall within the same realm. It's always people who aggressively like music or other forms of pop culture, be that movies or TV or whatnot, always kind of wearing uh, dark or punky clothes. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes always have like piercings or in some weird cases, because who's, I don't, I don't know who got tattoos in high school, but sometimes tattoos. Um, what do you think about the, the weird crowd that adopts Steve? I love that the weird kids adopt Steve because obviously he's the new kid and mm-hmm. people don't know what to make of him. They don't know where he falls in line yet. So they, nobody wants to be the one that steps up and like welcomes him and offers him that, that hand in friendship. But the weird kids do because they're constantly othered and they mm-hmm. know that nobody wants to be around them. So they're like, Hey, we know what this feels like let's, let's help you out with this. But I feel like the, the coding of the weird quote unquote weird kids in high school movies to be, you know, the alt kids or the goths or what have you is because that is the direct opposition of the the blue ribbon types which tend to be more sports forward and the reason that they're more sports forward is because sports have a great deal of influence with like capitalism Mm. (laughs) because they make so much money and they are also associated with academics because there's collegiate sports Um, and the weird kids are ones that tend to lean more towards into art which is viewed as something that's a little bit more liberal and a little bit more progressive and more 
provocative where sports feel very conservative and they feel very much on the right end of the, the right as in like the political right mm-hmm. end of the spectrum. Um, and that is what is viewed as like the poster children for good things. Um, and as much as, you know, filmmaking and in this day and age is kind of where art meets commerce. When you're in high school, the amount of kids that are told, you know, you better have a backup plan because that's not a sustainable career or you you need to do something other than your art thing. Um, that is the, 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 that is the pervasive narrative. Whereas mm-hmm. kids with sports, it's like parents will refinance their entire house to try to get their kids on like a D1 collegiate football team and you don't really see that for the art kids so they they tend to be relegated to being the weirdos of high school and they've always been in my opinion the most interesting <laughs> oh, obviously obviously same because i mean evidently i was the weird art kid in my school for the entirety <laughs> of the duration there but i think this is as you were speaking i was realizing this is the kind of the very american um nature of the film as well where that comes in because you know from an uh, from a european point of view those are not kind of things that necessarily exist as systems or even as as kind of cultures so Mm -hmm. that that separation and the how commercial and how financially important it is for school athletes to then like go into um university like becoming university athletes and then going into it professionally that's that's entire i mean i know these words because i've seen them in movies you know but those full rides and the um sports scholarships and all that stuff those are legitimate ways that people could continue their education absolutely and what i've what i find so interesting about this whole system as well is that i'm somebody who in america like i i was able to kind of ride both sides of that because Mm -hmm. i was a musical theater kid i was really into films i was kind of a weird goth kid but I was also a world champion baton twirler, and that meant that I twirled for my high school majorettes. And we won state every single year. We won nationals every single year. It was a huge deal. Holy shit. So I was, yeah, so I was a goth kid who also had a letterman's jacket. And my letterman's jacket had all of my patches from, from the things I won from baton. But then the back of my letterman's jacket also said like thespian society and choir and things that are very not athlete based. But I, (laughs) Because I was in both of these worlds, though, I got to see how differently they they function. And the fact that in America, we don't have, you know, free education for for secondary education is why sports are pushed so heavily Mm -hmm. on kids. I knew plenty of kids who burnt out by the time they were 20, because they were you know, they were star athletes, and they were pushed so heavily. I mean, we even see this in John Hughes movies, when you look at something like The Breakfast Club, and Mm -hmm. poor Emilio Estevez has a full ass breakdown about how hard he's pressured by his dad to be good at sports. And we like to pretend like, oh, it doesn't matter, or it's not a big deal. It's just high school. But these are the building blocks of people's, you know, coming into their own and becoming adults and learning who they are as people. And this is where it starts. So the kids that are really into art are made to feel like outsiders are made to feel like they're not good enough, that they're never going to be good enough. And kids that are, you know, even mediocre at football are trained and pushed and believed to be like, you're the star, Mm -hmm. you're the best thing that's ever happened, which is why when you go back for your high school reunion, you'll see the kid that was the, the star quarterback of the football player never left their hometown, didn't do anything because once they leave that parameter of that world that they've created, they're nobody. 
and they don't want to lose sight of that. Mm. You're so right. You made me instantly think of Jackson, uh, the character in Sex Education as well, with his own mm-hmm. mental and physical breakdown in, because of the pressure of kind of performing and being the star swimmer in his team and in his school. But uh, I wanted to to move on to the actual plot that drives this whole mm-hmm. movie. You know, the the chip that's implanted into them and the mad scientist who does it, Dr. Caldecott. Mm-hmm. Um, I... <laughs> go on. I say, I hate that I feel like this is something that if it were real, that I know people would sign up for in a heartbeat, <laughs> which is really upsetting on so many levels. And what's interesting is until we get the reveal that it is Dr. Caldecott and that it is like this whole system, you you kind of think like, is it aliens? Is it like a, a parasite? Like what's happening? Mm-hmm. What's going on? Nobody seems to know. And then when you realize that not only is it not a conspiracy that it's really happening um but that parents are involved and and all of like the the systemic structures the police force the school district like that everyone's in on it it makes it that much scarier because it feels so real mm-hmm. and it feels very you know the stepford wives thing is is pretty obvious but then you i also think about like the scene in get out where they're basically like auctioning off mm-hmm. um the character and that's what these parents are doing is they're nominating their kids and like pleading to like fix them or make them anything other than who they are they're asking for it literally yes it's it's terrifying and we've been having these conversations a lot more and more now that you know social media is as prominent where you'll see things all the time that's like if you cannot accept that your child may wake up one day and realize that they are transgender or that your child is gay or Mm -hmm. that they are into certain things then don't be a parent and like that is what i want to scream when all of these parents are meeting together in a gym to offer up their children is like you do not deserve to be a parent <laughs> mm-hmm. and also and I'm, I'm already kind of i already feel prejudged by what i'm about to bring up but i was listening to seth rogan's Storytime podcast the mm-hmm. other day um surprisingly good i can't believe this is coming out of my mouth but he there was an episode that kind of made me think as you were talking about that same thing about the pre the structures of success that the parents mm-hmm. want to fit their teenage into it's like well you need to get the good grades you need to go to a good university you need to get a good job and a good job is qualified by how much money you're making and how big a house you can buy versus how mm-hmm. happy it makes you or how fulfilling it is or mm-hmm. how much you enjoy doing it and what you get out of it so this this kind of pushing their kids or even in the case of our protagonist um steve there's a whole lot of baggage that he comes with that has clearly not been addressed by his family at all so instead of dealing with the trauma that their kid is going through, that both their kids are going through, because they had um, lost their elder son to suicide. Kind of this happens off screen. Poor poor Mr. Ethan Embry that we only get to see in like flashback videos. Exactly. Like in a really, really brief flashback as well. But I'm like, can you maybe deal with what's happening in your house? This is not about fixing Steve with with, uh, with mad science. It's about maybe helping him process the loss of his brother. Mm-hmm. And this is unfortunately a thing that we see all the time. And I find that this movie is also a really good time capsule of sort of the mentality that 
millennials were pushed with, which was this idea that we got from our, you know, late end boomer to early, early, early Gen X parents, mm-hmm. where it was like, you have to do X in high school to go to X college to make X amount of money, because that is the only way to be successful. Like, it's very, very much like a Reagan era kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And now what we're dealing with is people of my generation who did that, who followed all of those rules and the formula that we had been told since childhood was the way to success. And it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. There are no jobs. Like we are all just saddled with student loan debt that makes it impossible for any of us to buy a house, to have children, to do any of these things that we have been told are the, the, the landmarks and milestones of success. And we're all kind of short circuiting and having an existential crisis every single day. (laughs) But these parents, don't know how to communicate with their children or help them. So they just want there to be a magic wand to fix them. And we see that with parents who are like, I don't know what to do about my gay kid. Let's send them to conversion therapy. Or I don't know what to do about my kid. They're not making any friends. Let me sign them up for a sports team that they don't actually want to be in. And these are these kind of like, hey, you go over here and figure it out. I don't have time for this sort of mentality that a lot of parents of this era had in America. And it's, it's terrifying, <laughs> genuinely terrifying. There's a, there's a really great sentence that, um, oh my God, I've, oh, his name escapes me now, but the janitor character tells Steve in a deleted scene. And we should talk about the absolute massacre that went on with this film as well oh behind God, the scenes. Yes. But there's this great scene in a, uh, this great moment in a deleted scene where he says that kids don't drive drunk and cradle bay anymore but they don't laugh or dance either. And it's just Mm -hmm. this complete erasure of joy or making dumb mistakes as well at that age in order to fit into this idea of potential and a very, very strict um, idea of potential, which I think is one of the most, like you were mentioning, one of the most weirdly relatable elements about this film. And this is also a 90s film that's coming out uh, right around the era where uh, Ritalin became a big thing in the school systems of just like, we don't want to take the time to figure out how to help our neurodivergent children. So we're just going to load them up with medication that makes them not feel anything. Mm -hmm. And that was a big thing. Like there are so many really weird and interesting parallels happening in this movie to what was happening culturally at the time. And I'm glad that you brought up the deleted scenes because Mm -hmm. this movie gets shit on a lot as being bad or being whatever. But the reality of it is that it was butchered to death. And a lot of the character work and a lot of the the interesting talking points, like you mentioned, they've all been taken out. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if disturbing behavior was kind of given a blue ribbon treatment to make it something as sanitized and and palatable as possible. Mm -hmm. And in the process, like completely destroyed the heart of it. And weirdly as well, and you know, to to explain this very briefly, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go full nerd and kind of use the running time minutes to to um create kind of a timeline of this. This movie, <laughs> the version that it that is out there is 84 minutes long. That's the theatrical release. That's the version that's on the the DVD, the Blu-ray. There, but there's a fan edit online that has joined in all the deleted scenes that are in the DVD extras, and that takes it up to 103 minutes. The original director's cut was 115 minutes. And mm-hmm. that is the version that got kept getting butchered by 
um, demands from test screenings. And I read that even the test, the early test screenings were positive, except for uh, a minority of the, of the test audience. And still the demands from the studio were to cut things. The ending was changed. Then the director, it just completely got taken away from the director to recut. Um, and they wouldn't even let him kind of add in or release the, the original director's version on the Blu-ray years later, like 20 years later when it got re-released on, on high definition, the studio still would not let him actually access or use or, um, the material that he shot to like do the composite of the film that would have been his version. So it's, it's a weird kind of butchered Frankenstein of a monster of a movie where you can see that it was great but has been kind of tinkered with so much and i genuinely don't understand and i don't think anybody knows why it's still not allowed to be put back together now i mean it's over 20 years after it was originally released mm -hmm. the stakes are non-existent that's the the thing that i don't understand about it is that this is a movie that just the complete it, like the intentions have been changed completely mm -hmm. behind it. Cause I know in, in one of the deleted scenes, like Steve and, and Rachel have sex yeah. and that was kind of unheard of at this point in, in teen horror of protagonists having sex and not dying and mm -hmm. taking that out, I feel sucks away that importance of, of the, like, like that sex positivity message that I can see, like they're subverting it a little bit in the current edit, but it's not quite as obvious, um, when you have that out. Or, you know, you even find out that the, the brother who, who unfortunately took his own life, he did so because the parents were separating him, like, from the girlfriend and he mm -hmm. felt like he had nothing left. Like these are very important things because it also, then kind of puts an additional onus onto these parents who we know they've moved to Cradle Bay because they're trying to fix Steve because they don't want to deal with, you know, Steve's trauma and the fallout from their his brother's suicide, which was indirectly like it was caused by them as well. Mm -hmm. So like it paints them as even more responsible for everything that's going on. And it really bums me out because you can tell that there is a good movie here. Like it has all of the bones of a good movie. But yeah, all, all of the, the, the heart and the meat has just been left behind somewhere to rot. And that that's such a disservice to this movie, the message and mm. everything that's going on. And I, I try not to get into like conspiracy theory land, but it's like maybe they thought this movie would, you know, inspire teens to rebel too hard. And that's why we can't have it. And like, obviously, that's not the case. It's probably got to do with like money or something. They don't want to give him more money. Um but it's 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 a shame. It's a real shame because I love I love this movie and I love what we got. But I love knowing, like I hate knowing that it could have been so much more. I know, me too. Like you know, fuck the Snyder Cut, release the Nutter Cut. That's the one that I want. <laughs> um, like it it does seem kind of nonsensical that it just won't happen even so much so long after the film has been released, even as a lot of these actors have become bigger stars and you know mm -hmm. david nutter the director has gone on to have a very he already had an excellent career in directing television and films but he, he got even bigger so these are not kind of unprofessional people these are not untalented people who have kind of disappeared after making uh, disturbing behavior in the film flopping at the box office they've continued to to rise up so why why can't we have 
the film that was that existed that was made the materials are there and especially when you see how excited people got when Clive Barker was finally able to release the director's cut of Nightbreed, mm. another movie that was famously like butchered by producers. And I do think that there is an important distinction to be made between something like releasing a Nutter cut versus like the Snyder cut or like David Ayer will not shut the fuck up about the Suicide Squad cut no um, that he wants to have. Yeah, no one cares. That movie made $700 million. Like, I don't care. But this movie was a humongous flop and it was a huge failure. And that to me i think that's the motivation for why we should have the deleted scenes and have the official director's cut because it did fail and it Mm -hmm. failed because of those changes that were made exactly exactly and like you say it is quite it is quite sad to see the bones of a really really excellent smart teen horror but kind of the you can see the stitches where the changes mm-hmm. were made you can see mm-hmm. the things that kind of feel shoehorned and are nonsensical and and before we kind of start winding down we haven't really spoken about our lead our lead cast or well mm-hmm. the cast at all because this is uh i mean it's difficult to put them into context now because we all know who james marsden is we all know who katie holmes and nick Stoll are, but like they were not well-known young actors at this point in right. time so what do you what do you make of our of our teen cast i love that there is like a like a very small mini universe of movies where katie holmes is like an alt girl like i love that so much because i like i think with this or like pieces of april yeah. where you know she's got blunt bangs and a lot of eyeliner uh, because i think Like, I showed this movie to my wife, and she had never seen it before, and Mm -hmm. she, like, couldn't get past that. She's like, why is Katie Holmes an alt girl? And I was like, we hadn't pigeonholed her yet. Like, this is before that. Um, But I think that she's great, because Katie Holmes reminded me in the... She reminds me in this movie so much of all of the girls that I had crushes on in high school, because they didn't let anybody push them around. They were really mouthy. And because of that, like, the jocks were super into her, because they were like, ooh, that's an interesting color. I've never seen that before. Like, like a feisty woman like they were all weirdly into it um and but you know of course they can't be with girls like that because that affects their their social status so they have to do that in secret um and then you have <laughs> but then you have like James Marsden who is playing this every man and James Marsden goes on to be like a Disney prince Literally. and the cap and like a literal Disney prince and like the captain of the football team in Sugar and Spice and like James Marsden is also like one of my favorite himbos yes. um in in film cuz he's he's like a golden retriever like he's so cute but so kind of doofy and I love him um but he's such a great everyman in this movie because he walks in and like you look at him and you're like James Marsden is beautiful that is a gorgeous man but he's not treated that way and I love that because that is a very real part of high school that people don't like to address that sometimes it doesn't matter like how hot you are if you're an outsider if you're new or if you're into something weird like you're still treated as other no matter how hot you are mm-hmm. and I think that's really really interesting and then like Nick Stahl like he is such a great burnout character him and you <laughs> both like they're both great burnouts and i but the only issue that i have with him and with his kind of storyline is i do hate the trope of like the alt guys or like the um like the stoner guys or the burnout guys that are still in love with the girl that is like the preppy popular girl 
because that's always felt very like insincere to me. I'm like those kids, I grew up with those kids. They never had any interest in the, the popular blonde girls in school because they were like, no, they're prissy and uptight. I don't care about them. So for him to be so into her, or I think he calls her like fire of my loins or something really mm. gross and poetic. I'm like, that's not real. Like, no, you don't. You think more enough for yourself. But you know, at the same time, you could argue that's the socialization that all boys receive of like, that is the type of girl that you're supposed to be into. And that's why somebody like Rachel is seen as like too edgy or too much. Mm. Though I do like the idea of Gavin as a kind of kinder alternative to JD, the 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 old boy psychopath from Heather's, uh, where yes, he's mouthy yes, yes. and over articulate and over verbose, but he still will go for um the pristine popular girl. Although, what kind of in in if I. I'm, because I like the character, I almost want to justify him as being like, are you, are you just into the popular girl who constantly will reject you because you, that's like another way of being edgy? You're just oh, going yeah, you like the- all the way around. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's like a little bit of humiliation fetish in there. <laughs> Maybe it's just a way of him trying to get Rachel's attention as well, because that who he—that's who he really likes. He gets so mm-hmm. weird when he sees the sparks fly between her and Steve. Oh yeah, mm. you can tell that. Like that's that's definitely a sore spot of he's never gonna get her, and then you know, pretty boy Steve shows up, Stevie boy. Yeah. <laughs> And um and we kind of briefly mentioned Dalton Dr. Caldicott Bruce Greenwood um who again kind of feels like an overgrown blue ribbon in this film his version of a math scientist feels like that he really does feel like the doctors for mental hygiene films of mm-hmm. like hello kids here's how you need to be upstanding citizens like he feels like that guy that you would see on a slideshow projector a day that a teacher doesn't feel like teaching the curriculum <laughs> And so, but also so cruel in such casual ways, especially with, um, with regards to his own daughter. Mm-hmm. I, I have a fascination and also like a complete, just revulsion towards scientists and doctors who experiment on their own children. Mm. Um, on like a very visceral level that I can't quite put into words. Maybe it's because I read my sister's keeper like way too young and it's like scarred <laughs> me for life. Um, but you can tell that his priority has never been like, it was never about like the well being of his own child. Like this clearly is money making and this clearly is perpetuating like mm. terrible, atrocious cycles. Because I think when he, when they finally confront him, he refers to her as like a failed experiment or something like that. Yeah. And, And it almost makes me wonder, like, did you have the child in the first place just to figure this out? Like, was she ever a child to you? And, you know, because I know he talks about like, oh, he was trying to change her or whatever. But it's like, but if he had her with the intent knowing like this is the experiment that I'm going to inevitably run – I doubt that she had a very like nurturing and supportive childhood. So of course she started acting out as she became a teenager. She had no support system at home. Mm-hmm. So he almost like proved his own theory by being a piece of shit parent. Um, I have thought way too much about his, po- his possible backstory. <laughs> I'm, I'm into do, do, do expand if you'd like to. <laughs> Yeah, I genuinely think that he had this idea of wanting to create perfect teens. And I think Mm -hmm. that his own daughter was part of that plan. Like she was never meant to be his child. She was meant to be a a guinea pig. And 
he, he only kind of perpetuated that cycle and, you know, proved the hypothesis because he was an inattentive dad because he never saw her as a child. That was never his daughter. That was always going to be the experiment. Mm. And, you know, cause I, I genuinely don't think that he just woke up one day and was like, I don't know what to do with my troubled teen. What if I brainwash her? Mm. Like, I feel like there was motivating factors before then. And it's truly, it's truly sad when we do see her in the asylum. And also like this asylum is the most like nineties teen, like horror asylum. It's very house on haunted Hill. It's very like, like Jacob's ladder for teens. Like everything so is dirty and filthy and like just falling apart it's very strange um and when you see her it's so sad and i know like even rachel and and steve have kind of that realization of like oh my god his own daughter Mm. and it's like of course his own daughter he's a (laughs) madman yeah it's it's it it, everything is really exaggerated until they meet her and then it becomes just sad and confirming it, of just how yes. insane and cruel he actually is. And there's that wonderful needle drop when they are escaping that jumps into flagpole Sita that feels so like thrown in there. I love that it's there, but it like totally breaks like the like the the trajectory of the film and like kind of it's really jarring cuz you're like, "Whoa, that's a needle drop I was not expecting to be here." I mean, that whole scene, I just like, if this is you trying to get the horror kudos, like the horror bits of the film up a notch, it's, it's just, it's a bit too weird to work. Um, but you know, it would be, it makes a great first date, you know, to quote Steve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the asylum scenes to me, if, if, full transparency, they're my least favorite part mm. because I find them to be, they're so horror tropey of like, there's the person that's repeating themselves Mm -hmm. or there's somebody who's like hitting their head repeatedly into a wall. Like that stuff just feels so like paint by numbers. This is what we think crazy people act like. And that's not how it is at all. Like I've, I've had my fair share of 5150 holds. That's not what asylums are like. (laughs) Um, But uh, because the real terror and the real horror to me is the everything else that's going on in Cradle Bay. Like that stuff is genuinely scary to me. And I hate that that's the stuff that got chopped up the most by, by the studio because that's the real horror. And we see that perfected with something like Get Out. Like, mm-hmm. it's perfected that now. And it's a bummer because when that movie even came out, I was like, everybody's making the parallels, obviously, to the Stepford Wives because th- it's obvious. Mm-hmm. I was like, but had disturbing behavior been a the full cut and had been presented as, like, the true version of the movie that it is, I feel like we would be having a similar discussion about this, the way we socialize teenagers, but that just conversation doesn't happen because this movie ultimately was a failure. Mm. And And... You know, we've spoken about how it was butchered and you refer to it as a kind of as a failed movie a few times. What what made you pick it, though, from the list that I sent you? So something that I talk about a lot on The Sunset Prom and then also just in my my work as a, a film writer, I write full time over at Slash Film and I use my platform over there a lot to champion movies that get a bad rap. Um, movies that people think are bad 
and have just universally sort of accepted that they're bad, but have never interrogated why they feel that way or why they believe that to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, I know frequent guests that you have, Jordan Cruciola, Mm -hmm. has talked numerous times about like Jennifer's body to the point where on This Unsent Prom, we've turned it into like a verb of a movie getting Jennifer's bodied, which Uh is the the belief that a movie is terrible upon release and then you rewatch it and you're like, wait, no, actually this is saying something really, really important important and it was just mismarketed or mishandled by audiences or misunderstood in general and disturbing behavior is one of those movies for me that i've always felt that way mm-hmm. i've said numerous times that if i ever had the chance to remake any movie i would remake disturbing behavior and just make it the way that it was intended um because i think that there's something so important being said here that was ultimately just lost in a poor edit mm-hmm. And and before we wrap up, PJ, is there anything that we haven't covered about disturbing behavior that you'd like to bring up? Um, the only thing that we didn't really cover that I love bringing up is I love I love the teen speak in this movie. I love yes. Katie Holmes as Rachel being like Razor, yes. like that's such a great <laughs> line. Um, I love UV describing every single social click as like freaks with sneaks, freaks <laughs> who fix leaks, and kind of putting every teen group on the same playing field. Like we're all freaks. We're just different types of freaks. I love that. And I know movies get a lot of shit for having teen speak, uh, especially things like Jennifer's Body and Juno, because Diablo Cody is just a master at it. Because we forget that when we are teenagers, we do come up with stupid words that no one else talks about. We are all the the guy from Never Been Kissed saying things are Rufus. We are all Gretchen Wiener saying that's so fetch. Like, we are. We're idiots. And we all come up with stupid languages just so that we can have something of our own. When you're a teenager, there is so much that is out of your control. You have curfews. You have limitations let teenagers have their own vernacular. It's fine. <laughs> BJ, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this this failed but really, really lovable movie. And I'm with you. You know, let's release the Nutter Cut. And I hope it actually gets restored into its proper original form one day. Thank you so much for your time and for your insight on it. And for people listening, where can they find more of your work online? Absolutely. So most of the things that I post are all on my Twitter or Instagram. And my handle is just my name at BJ Colangelo. And you can find us waxing poetically about teen films across all genres at This Ends at Prom, wherever you get your podcasts or This Ends at Prom on Twitter, Instagram and Patreon. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think something's taking over our school. in the fiction section of the library. Yeah, so is Schindler's List. How do we know this writer guy Jack Finney. didn't encounter aliens in his high school, which led him to write a book about an alien invasion? You guys need circus tissue with all of them. Casey, I don't want to I think you found a new species. Hey, Stokely, maybe it's from your point. Whoa, did you see that? Now, I remembered loving this film, and when mm-hmm. I saw it again, it had aged differently than I remembered, but I still 
really left with like a lot of love for it. Hmm. So, what did you think about it rewatching it now? I think it was a lot more nihilistic than I remembered. Like, I love this idea of well, I mean, you've kind of got this like central cast of misfits, which are kind of mm-hmm. a little bit could come out of a John Hughes film. Um, mm-hmm. But there's kind of a grittiness to them that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. And it kind of spoke to, you know, especially when you're kind of a teenager in the UK, mm-hmm. like how much cooler being an American teenager looks like, oh even God, when yes. they're supposed to be in this like really grim high school. Um, yes. But like just that like the local drug dealer like drives a badass car and is secretly <laughs> a science genius. Like I was like, yes, this is kind of the gritty teenage years of my dreams. <laughs> Did you identify with any one character when you were a teenager? I think everyone thinks they're Claire Duvall. So <laughs> so actually it makes the kind of final scene with Claire Duvall even more disappointing. But yeah, it had a lot more teeth than I expected it to. Mm-hmm. Like you have that character um, whose name escapes me. Um, the kind of head cheerleader who's also the editor of the news. Delilah. Yes. She is such a stone cold bitch in a way, and so unapologetically so. And I think yes. a film with less teeth would have like kind of softened her and made her like a little, you know, a little, you know, materialistic perhaps and a little mm-hmm. overconcerned with her image, but like, you know, at her core, like a fully decent person. But no, this film is just like she is a monster. There's one point where like <laughs> somebody is like, being chased down by her friend is being chased down by aliens and he trips and he's like please help me and she just keeps running (laughs) (laughs) my favorite delilah bitch moment is when stan tries to kiss her at like at the start of the film and she's like uh no this lipstick takes 72 minutes to apply (laughs) it's like it's lipstick what are you doing no it's and then like that she's just a raging homophobe it's also like i think in a way probably has a different feeling in 2020 than it did when this film mm. um, came out. But it, to me, it kind of adds to it. It's just like, no, let's just make her awful and like kind of center it around these like really unsympathetic person. And she also has kind of no, you know, excuse for being such a massive dick to everyone. Like everybody gets sort of a familiar backstory that says, oh, they were then neglected by their parents yeah. or they're going through some family stuff, which kind of just gives them a bit of teenage angst. But she's just mean, just completely mean-spirited. Yeah, which actually leads me to one of my favorite moments in this film, which is just such a tiny one, where Mary Beth is saying to Josh Hartnett, like, oh, yeah, uh-huh. my parents died in a terrible accident. He was like, yeah, my parents are dead too. And she goes, really? And he goes, no, but they might as well be. And I was like, what sort of thing is that to say to somebody who's just told you about a tragic accident in which their parents died? Woo. I love it. I have a lot of love for this film. <laughs> I like. I used to watch it all the time as a teenager and had the same feeling of like, oh, my high school is nowhere near as dramatic and cool as the high school in the faculty. You know, when people get punched in the face just for stepping off of the school bus. That brings me on my, nicely to my next question is, how do you think this film kind of combines both this invasion of the body snatcher storyline with all of the teen movie tropes? So much of a tribute to the <laughs> yeah. thing, which one of my favorite films, so I was thrilled to see that. I think it works surprisingly well. And I, it's 
weird because I didn't realize actually that this was a Robert Rodriguez film until I just rewatched mm. it now. And aside from Josh Hartnett's car, it's and Selma Hayek being in a very small, thankless role, it's not very Robert Rodriguez-y, but he does still mm-hmm. have this kind of like real, like gleeful fun with it and like a bit of nihilism thrown in. So I, yeah, I think it really does manage to mesh all of those things really well. And I believe it was written mm-hmm. by the same guy who wrote Scream. It was Kevin Williamson. Yeah, so much of it feels like Scream, uh, like that first mm-hmm. uh, bit at the beginning where the principal is uh, being mm-hmm. uh, horribly murdered. Um, and uh, we've got the mother from Carrie, who is fantastic yes. in this film. Her name escapes me. What is? I've read it down. Oh no. Um, but yeah, she is phenomenal as a very, very threatening drama teacher. What do you think of the of the cast? Because we've both got the most nineties teen heartthrobs as the kind of the students. Well, heartthrobs is a strong word. It's just Josh Hartnett and everyone else who's ever been in a nineties teen movie. Yeah, and everyone as adults, like you mentioned, we've got Salma Hayek. There's Piper Laurie from Carrie. There's uh, um, BB Newell. Yes. Uh, John Stewart was the science yes. teacher. <laughs> and Robert Patrick from Terminator 2. This is yes. a fantastic uh, football coach. He's got such a phenomenal face for kind of being sinister. He really He's such a mean coach as well. What did you make of all of those, like, that spectacular cast? I just thought they were, I mean, the one that particularly stuck out for me was the drama teacher, better known as uh, Carrie's mum. Um, yeah who's what is Piper Laurie Piper Laurie yeah and there's I mean there's a slightly misogynistic thing that seems to happen with this film where um the women get infected by the alien parasite and then get like mm-hmm. way better groomed <laughs> <laughs> and that happens to her but it kind of even like lends to this kind of really like sinister facade this kind of like mm. beautifully like coiffured stiff hair and like mm-hmm. iciness that like comes out from this like beautiful eye makeup that she then puts on. I thought she was like really the standout to me. I actually think John Stewart is not great in this, but it was still good to see him. <laughs> it's always nice to see John Stewart. And kind of zeroing in on Mary Beth, who is the well, the alien queen, basically. Mm. And she's also the only performer who doesn't really have the same profile or didn't have the same profile in 1998 when this came out. Yeah. Um, she's played by Laura Harris. So what did you make of Barry Beth as a, as a character? She was a lot better than I had remembered. There's a lot of kind mm. of scenes where she is human, where she's kind of talking to Claire Duvall's character, talk- mm. talking to Josh Hartnett's character, which like very like subtly hints to what's to come, which is quite interesting when you have a rewatch to see those nods mm-hmm. because the film really does not put any clues that it's Mary Beth mm. um, in it. Like it's, um, there's no kind of um, like red herrings really that anyone mm-hmm. is any of that. I think you're just supposed to really believe it is the football coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she then kind of does this like fantastic nude monologue at the end, I was, I honestly, I was rooting for her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she makes a really compelling argument yeah. to come on to her side. Yeah, and everything will be peaceful and everything will be nice. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, well, Mary Beth is like fully in human form. The only one of mm-hmm. them that is not an actively terrible person. So maybe she has some points. 
And what do you think of her in her monstrous form? I, that was one of the things that I was impressed by. That like mm. often when you have kind of a monster that's revealed right at the last second, the reason that they're doing that is because the monster they have isn't great. Um, but actually, that was a very compelling monster. And I think that the CGI on it, you know, really worked very well. And the bit where it goes mm. into the pool, I thought was done so well. I, yeah, I was yeah. really impressed. I thought there's all of that aged pretty decently. Yeah, and that kind of final scene where she's in full alien form and hunting down Elijah Wood's character. Yeah. It's still maybe just the enormity of it, but it's also an alien that I think completely sheds her female form when she's in alien form, which I find quite interesting. Yeah. Especially if you think about species, which kind of, even when Syl is in her alien form, she still has essentially the body of a woman, but yeah. it's just made up in makeup and this is just a full insanely sized beast that's trying to eat up everyone yeah and it's more that kind of the human femininity was just like a good disguise because people just found this person mm. so non-threatening but she could kind of move about so easily within this kind of high school world mm -hmm. um but yeah no you're right i well i suppose that they're supposed to have a be a bit invasion of the body statures they have like a collective consciousness but then that doesn't fully hold up because there's one point where someone will yell like they're over here and it's like if there's a collective consciousness they already know <laughs> <laughs> and there's one thing that really stuck out to me upon rewatch which i hadn't picked up on when i was watching as a teenager is the kind of the dialogue is insane mm just a sheer amount of new combinations of insults and swear words that are done in this film. I'm like, I was making notes when I was rewatching it for this podcast. And most of my page of notes is just all of the new combinations of insults that they come up with. Oh my God, I need and to hear this. <laughs> just in those first like five minutes with, with the coach it's just like a barrage of new ways of demeaning people. And it kind of reminded me a lot of, of Heather's in the sense that the dialogue doesn't seem to be very 90s. It just seems to exist in a, in a parallel, timeless universe. And I was wondering what you thought of that. Um, yeah, like some of the insults between some of the characters are absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's particularly from uh, Clea Duvall, um, who's just yes. doing some wonderful kind of venomous work, shouting at her, <laughs> shouting at her uh, peers. But the, the one thing that I kind of thought that like the, really this storyline could not happen in um, 2020 was the whole Framke <clears throat> Janssen, Josh Hartnett sexual relationship between the teacher and the student, which... Um, mm -hmm has aged very, very strangely, because also at the end, they're together. <laughs> I'm glad you bring that up, because I also thought that, and I was like, mm, this is weird in so many ways. <laughs> and also just that scene when Fanke Jansen, at this point, she's an alien. Mm. Oh, yeah, but because she's become an alien, she's now super sexy, which is also the weird thing yeah. that happens in this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so she's now like fully gone into like sexy mode, but then but it's still a teacher working at the high school and it's somehow appropriate for her to physically assault and yell at a student in the middle 
of the parking lot in front of everyone and be cheered on by it. Yeah. That's such a strange thing. And that before that, there's this like really disgusting scene where he's sexually harassing her and like offering her laxatives and I think flavored condoms or something. Yeah. And I feel that there needs to be like a new name for this type of character that like Josh Hartnett is that like there was so much of in this era that's like the opposite of the manic pixie dream girl where it's kind of like the misunderstood fuck boy because <laughs> you know like there's a lot of those in this area in this yeah. era where they're like awful but like deep down like they've got some sadness <laughs> i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna pause i'm gonna suggest a name for this okay. because i love these it's not a soft boy because a soft boy uses feelings to manipulate. Sure. And it's not a fuck boy. This is a hard boy. And boy with an eye. Ah. Because they look hard and rough around the edges. Nice. But they're still boyish. And they still have feelings. And deep they down. Were- They've got some trauma. <laughs> and they're like, even though they haven't graduated <laughs> high school, they're like secretly a genius. And they're always just slightly too old to be in high school. I think the way that the film excuses Josh Hartnett's character hooking up with his teacher is the fact that he repeated a year. So technically, he's like 19 as opposed to underage or 18. Yeah, but you know Something what? Like We're that. saying that that's dated well, but that is basically exactly what happened in Booksmart, which came out last year. <laughs> it was weird in 1998. It's weird in 2020. Let's not Let's not encourage those types of relationships in cinema so what did you think of the of the ending now i remember seeing this and thinking originally and thinking the ending was bad because why would you take these characters that were like actually very like self-confident misfits well aside from elijah woods Mm -hmm. and then like have the ending be like oh now we're feel comfortable to be like super mainstream that like Josh Hartnett plays football now and Claire Duval is wearing pastels and um, everything. <laughs> but actually, if you watch watching it now, it's like this is a phenomenally great nihilistic ending because the whole mm-hmm. thing is that they actually never cared about anything beyond themselves because you've got Elijah Wood's character who's now making out with the incredibly... Um, gorgeous super bitch whose name i cannot never remember jordana, <laughs> Jordan, jordana brewster i think she's called delilah yeah yeah she is yeah because you know for whatever reason even though she's he's always hated him and then he's like really content in his kind of new place in the world and the press are all interviewing him but like right behind him somebody is being horrifically bullied in exactly the way he was in the beginning mm-hmm. of the film so it kind of suggests Mary Beth had not a bad idea in the first place because these people are so concerned with just like kind of being alphas in their own position mm-hmm. and nothing about like defending the defenseless. Yeah, no, I liked it. It was dark. <laughs> I like it's dark because it also kind of makes all of the the weirdos that we meet and we develop some sort of fondness for, like all of the misfit characters. Like you say, it makes them go mainstream and meld into the roles that they were sort of rejecting in the first place anyway. Like I was I was particularly disappointed with Claire Duval's character. Like she was a super cool goth chick who always read sci-fi novels and told everyone to fuck off and then suddenly 
but she's wearing pastels. All she wanted was a boyfriend. Uh, yeah, but she could have a boyfriend and still be a really cool goth girl who reads sci-fi novels. Uh, actually, one of the my favorite things. Oh, sorry, just going back again is like the bit where Stan <laughs> becomes an alien and he's talking to Claire Duval through the glass pane and he just mm. immediately starts negging her where he's just like, you yes. could be so pretty. <laughs> I know. I know. But, and, but, you know, she clearly took that on board and kind of did an Ali Sheedy in the Breakfast Star Club makeover for herself and now she's happy, apparently. God damn it. It was, it was too good to last forever, I guess. But is it, I mean, that is so wonderfully dark in its own way. That, like, yeah. sure, that, like, these guys, like, spent this whole time fighting off this monster that just wanted them to be part of this, like, giant, homogenized, like, brain. Um, mm. But actually left of their own devices. They did just that anyway. They just conformed <laughs> as much as they possibly could, given the opportunity. Oh, my God. I, I love that. And... To wrap up our conversation, I wanted to bring both of these films together. Both Species and the Faculty feature these female aliens that manifest as sort of conventionally beautiful, white, blonde, skinny women. And both of their key ambitions are sort of to procreate and protect their species. So what do you make of their takes on the alien? Um, I think the... um alien of the faculty uh, is a much more kind of interesting idea simply because there is like a broader plan a wider premise and when it comes down to that character kind of unveiling themselves and having their voice there's like a decision that's been made uh, and like a plan and a philosophy that's like actually quite succinctly kind of uh, you know given in like this rather well done monologue Mm mm-hmm um, I think the problem with species is you they just don't give that alien any real agency. So mm-hmm. it's it's very hard to know what you're watching and what it's trying to say in any broader sense about mm-hmm. um, society, about femininity, about you know sexuality, all of those things. whilst at least in the faculty, I felt like, oh, I could get what they're using this alien to try and say. and they both die at the end of the films. Yeah, justice for Mary Beth. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my god, that's <laughs> the, another t-shirt that I need to make. So why do you think the the female monster needs to die so often in these films? Well, I mean, there is kind of an idea that with like there's a level of misogyny in horror where we do where we as the audience love to see a woman kind of butchered in some ways. <laughs> it's probably an element of that happening. But also, I mean, in the case of species, I think they just ran out of things to do with her because they didn't really know where this was going. <laughs> which is a Brutal. sad state of affairs. <laughs> and to wrap up our conversation, would you recommend that contemporary horror fans seek these films out? The faculty, definitely, because it is also really, really fun. Um, I think if you are someone also who really loves Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it is in a kind of similar family. Um, Species, it's not boring. I mean, you're not going to kind of, uh, again, like I said, fall asleep or, um, Mm -hmm. or like 
spend the entire time looking at your phone, but it's been done um, better. So if you kind of want to watch an alien film with like a lot of great Geiger, watch Aliens. If you want to watch a kind of, if you want to watch a film about kind of a sex alien doing a great monologue, watch The Faculty. (laughs) What an amazing way to end. Layla, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. And where can people find more of your work online? And then I can always be found on Twitter. Um, I would not recommend my Instagram. It's only pictures of my children. Um, But Twitter, you can find me at Layla Latif. Thank you so much. Thank you.